Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Roundtable where we invite three top political reporters to look back on the big news of the week. And this week, like the past three weeks, the focus has been on efforts to contain the spread of the coronavirus. Bad news is that the number of cases in the United States is now over 450,000, with over 16,000 dead. Good news is it looks like social distancing and stay-at-home practices are working, As health officials report, fewer COVID-19 patients admitted to hospitals. Meanwhile, another 6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week alone, making a total of 17 million Americans out of work. And on the political front, with Bernie Sanders ending his campaign, the vast 26-person Democratic presidential field is now down to one man standing, Joe Biden. Here to try to make some sense of it all, joining us from the National Journal Hotline editor, Leah Escarinam. Hi, Leah. Hey, Bill. Hey, good to have you back. Thank you. Senior editor for U.S. News and World Report, Joe Williams. Hi, Joe. Hello, Bill. Good to be here. Thank you. Good to have you here. And from New York Magazine, national correspondent, Gabe Benedetti. Hello, Gabe. Hey, Bill. Good to uh, sort of see you. Yeah, right. We are, of course, social distancing, each of us joining from home, uh, and Leah and Joe here in Washington, and Gabe joining us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to you all. I checked the numbers just before we began. Uh, The latest count on the coronavirus, one and a half million cases globally, 454,000 in the United States, over 16,000 who have lost their lives to the coronavirus. What is your sense, I'd like to ask each of you, um, are things getting worse or getting better? Gabe, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's obviously a vague question. Uh, If you ask the White House, things are just great. Uh, I I would take the word of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, who this week said there's reason to believe that in the United States, at least, the curve is starting to flatten, which means that, indeed, the messaging about glimmers of hope uh are, you know, potentially correct. The truth, though, is that this is going to be clearly uh, a pretty painful time for a long time, and a lot more people are going to get sick, and a lot more people are going to die, and a lot more people are going to lose their jobs. So it depends on your definition of better, I guess. Yeah. And Leah, um, we do see that the number of hospitalizations has gone down, but at the same time, we're told that maybe the peak of people dying from coronavirus will be this Sunday, Easter Sunday. Right. I mean, I think we, we think about this as a national issue because all of us are at home doing our own thing, no matter where we are, D.C. or, or Charlottesville or wherever. Um, but I think that the truth of it is that in a lot of ways, it's a really regional 
um, matter. I mean, depending on where you are, things could be way worse or way better. Um, and that's part of the reason why when we're talking about rescheduling elections, why that's been such a big conversation. Um, obviously, we're starting to look uh, and see what the results in Wisconsin and Ohio have been um, and kind of see if Election Day affected the way that uh, the cities are in both states are, are handling the pandemic today. And Joe, while things may be, may, may, and, and Governor Cuomo is very careful when he says we may have reached the apex, um, here in the District of Columbia, State of Maryland, State of Virginia region, um, we may be just still on the upward side of the curve, right? Well, I think that's correct. And I also think there are several other places in the nation that are on that same trajectory. We haven't really seen an apex in the southeast. Uh, we had uh, a small city in Georgia as one of the peak per capita places where the virus has taken hold. And in the district, uh, as you mentioned, we're still on the upswing. Uh, as a matter of fact, Governor Larry Hogan issued uh, mask wearing orders uh, in, the, in the last 48 hours. Um, and I think that, uh, to Gabe's point, we're probably still going to see a lot of death and a lot of illness and a lot of economic pain. So it is, you know, it depends on what you do mean by better, because we still have a long way to go. Keep in mind that Italy had this, uh, it was grappling mm -hmm. with this at least a month before the U.S., and they're still in the midst of it, and we're trailing them and overtaking many other countries as like the leaders in the number of, days, uh, of deaths from the virus. So we still have a long way to go. There's reason for cautious optimism, but let's not uncork the champagne until we f can finally come out of our homes to do it. Uh, and Joe, staying with you there for a second, one of the just horrific things that we heard this week about the coronavirus was the shocking percentage of victims among people of color, particularly African-Americans. As Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago said, it's really heartbreaking to hear those, hear those numbers. And that's true here in the and the D.C. region as well as around the country. Well, and it's really amazing. The numbers are just kind of eye-popping. 70-some-odd percent in Chicago, 70-plus percent in Louisiana. Uh, I saw a statistic the other day that said in St. Louis, almost 100% of the fatalities were African-American. And to me, it's it, it, it absolutely is heartbreaking, but it's not that surprising, which is kind of unfortunate to say. I mean, we've dealt with these problems for a long, long time. There have been systemic issues that have caused these death tolls to spike. And it's going to, I think, should have sparked a national conversation about it. I think we're, we're having it right now. But too often, these kinds of things tend to go down the memory hole. Um, but in, from my perspective, what it does is lay bare a lot of the issues on social inequality and on healthcare inequality that we've been, you know, some of us have been writing about for years and that others have been ringing the alarm bell about for years, but now it's just being laid bare in real time with an actual body count attached. Right. I guess, Gabe, it is a striking example of income inequality in terms of the people who are most exposed, the people that still have to go to work every day because they're, they live so close to the edge. Sure. And not just income, but societal inequality overall. And I think one of the great uh, unfortunate things that's happened here in terms of how the nation has talked about this and conceived of this problem is very early on the messaging. And this was largely based on what we were seeing in other countries. The messaging was, well, this is a great equalizer. Everyone is going to be equally affected. That is plainly not the case. It's true that 
people are susceptible to it equally. But of course, people in this country don't have equal living conditions, don't have equal working conditions. And I think to Joe's point, it's a good thing that this has sort of a, become more of a national conversation. It's obviously horrific that this is what it takes for this to be a national conversation in the first place. But yeah, that's that's right, uh, Bill. Income inequality, social inequality, and, and the inequality of living and working conditions, for the spotlight to finally be shown on that is is, is a good thing. I wonder what the conversation is going to look like, though, in a few months, especially as, you know, the election season turns, you know, keeps going. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden, to his credit, brought this up yesterday. He talked about it a little bit, but obviously this is not at the center of his appeal. And if the appeal, if the the central conversation about um, recovery from this ends up being, well, Donald Trump did a very bad job for X, Y, and Z reasons, then that suggests that the political conversation will not necessarily be focused on this very real present issue. Um, And it's, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how this continues to be talked about, because of course, uh, this is a reflection of, of issues that have been boiling in this country for decades, if not centuries, obviously. Um, and now there is we're trying to find a way to talk about it in the national political realm. Yeah. I mean, Leah, that, that uh, that's a very good point, I believe, that how we come out of this is going to be extremely important. There are important lessons, I think, that can be learned for all of us through this uh, about um, – the need for universal health care, the, the need for a living wage, the need for family and medical leave, um, the need to do something about income inequality, and on and on. Um, I, I guess it remains to be seen whether we will have that conversation and learn those lessons. If not, it is an opportunity wasted, wouldn't you say? Well, I mean, part of the reason why Bernie Sanders was getting some pressure to stay in the race as long as he did and actually stay in longer than he did was because this whole conversation about income inequality obviously has a magnifying glass on it right now. Um, And that is the centerpiece of his campaign in a way that it's never been for really any other candidate ever. Um, um, Bernie Sanders is talking about that more than uh, Joe Biden, obviously, and more more than Donald Trump. But I think that more than kind of shaping the conversation, it really is going to end up, uh, I think the the main effect is going to be on Trump himself. Um, Income inequality might not be his biggest issue right now, but the economy at large is. Um, And it's really hard to imagine an election in which Trump cannot say that he saved the economy, where Trump is not, or Trump is at fault for um, a downturn in the economy and he still gets reelected. Obviously, the the conversation about income inequality is one that we're having and one that maybe would have dominated a Democratic primary conversation. But I think that when it comes to a general election, the economy at large and how the country is doing will kind of glide over some of those um, inequalities and instead focus on the overall overall state of the economy and, you know, stocks and uh, all that stuff. Well, indirectly, each of you has uh, made some reference to or indicated the key question of political leadership at this in, during this crisis, coronavirus crisis. Um, and uh, it, it does ask each of us, I guess, to reflect on where are we looking for political leadership? Is it to the White House or is it more and more to governors and mayors? Um, Republican governors and Democratic governors. It, it gave. It looks to me like this is really they're the ones running this show. Yeah. Well, there's also a good case to be made that this should have been the case for a long time, and that the presidency in general, uh, regardless of who is in the White House, has become too too powerful and too uh, 
even if you don't think about the political power it actually has, you know, just it op- uh, it occupies too much space in all of our minds. Um, yeah, obviously the governors and mayors are the ones stepping up here, and and it's very striking to me that, to hear them even as they're trying to literally save uh, residents of their states. A lot of them are not being sparing in their uh, criticism of the White House at all at this point because they realize that there's basically just the truth of the matter is that the White House has fallen down on the job. There's not really any coordination coming from the White House. They are stepping back from the effort to, uh, or stepping back from the responsibility to provide federal aid in a lot of cases. Uh, And when you see the president specifically uh, going after, in political terms, Democratic governors, it's very hard to take the White House's efforts too seriously. So, of course, it makes sense that local leaders are the ones who are stepping up here. Uh, and, and as you said, it's a bipartisan issue. These are not only Democrats who are who are who deserve credit uh, for standing up to the White House. Look at Mike DeWine in Ohio has gotten a lot of credit for his basically just competent handling of 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 this you know terrifying crisis. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic, I think, because this is a country that's not paid a lot of attention to governors in the last decade or decade and a half compared to uh, senators or members of Congress or certainly the president on the national stage. And for someone like Gretchen Whitmer, for example, or Andrew Cuomo, obviously, or Gavin Newsom or Jay Inslee, uh, to list some of the Democrats, for them to become national household names is a really interesting political dynamic. And I'd be very curious to see how that plays out over the next few months. Joe, you mentioned Larry Hogan earlier, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, another one. He's uh, a Republican governor uh, of a blue state, which was very striking to hear all the plaudits and accolades that he's been he's been getting. But there are two things that come to mind. The first is that the governors and uh, mayors and Cuomo and uh, uh, the like they've stepped up basically by default. I mean, yeah. this is a national <laughs> crisis. That's I mean, right. this is where leadership. Right has to come from the White House. It is It is not a, a, a situation where you should have an ad hoc kind of patchwork response, which is what we've get, been getting. The second is, if you look at the Southern governors, they've been taking their cue very much from Donald Trump. Mike DeWine is an outlier. So is uh, Larry Hogan. And to, to praise people for basic competent leadership when we don't have uh, that leadership coming from the White House, to me, is very striking. I mean, in... in it, it, it kind of gets me animated because we are in a Pearl Harbor moment. We're in a 9-11 moment. We don't have space for default leadership and states' rights uh, to, to, to come into play here when people's lives are at stake. Yeah. And one might even argue that if the White House had a stronger, more definitive leadership role, more lives might have been saved and we would look more like South Korea and less like Italy. Yeah, and I think to that point, you look at someone like Governor DeSantis in Florida got a ton of credit at first from conservatives specifically for basically just standing up and looking responsible. But now the the infection rate and the death rate in Florida has skyrocketed essentially because DeSantis said, I'm relying on cues from the White House here, and those cues just never came. Uh, so I think you're right. I mean, it is a low level of praise to, bas- to basically say – uh, basic competence here is is, is is something that we should be holding up as some sort of incredible new standard. Right. And so, Leah, when uh, we look to the White House, what we get is the daily Trump show at 5.30 or 6 or 6.30 or whatever, which drags on for two hours. Um, are these worthwhile? Are we, I mean, it is a president of the United States, but are we learning anything? Are we getting anything? I mean, is this it provide any level of confidence in the American people. What about what? What is your take on these briefings? Period. I mean, I wonder if it's kind of too little, too late. I mean, the governors had a chance to step in and kind of a vacuum um, over the last month, and now Trump has kind of come out and tried to become the 
the centerpiece of this conversation. Um, actually, National Journal today did an analysis of uh, Trump's speaking time between March 13th and April 7th, so 26 days. Um, and George Condon at National Journal did the analysis and found that Trump talked more than any of his 44 predecessors ever did in a comparable period of time. So and this said is, left, I would add. Well, 408,834 words, so it depends on your definition of said less. Um, But, I mean, he's clearly trying to make up for lost time. We did see an uptick in his approval rating um, kind of toward the beginning of this, almost more when he was a little more silent on the issue. Now we're seeing him get back to his uh, usual approval ratings, you know, kind of the area where he always tends to stay in the, the low 40s. Um, but I mean, toward the beginning, uh, there's just a, a, a vacuum that he, he did not fill. Right. So um, one of the other aspects of this, I was picking up uh, this morning's New York Times business section, at least 16,780,000 Americans have lost their jobs. It took 21 days. That's staggering. I mean... The, the metaphor that I, that I always think about is like we slammed on the brakes and the airbag is deploying like a little too late, you know, after the head has already cracked the windshield because you're, you're, you're basically putting the economy in a, in a, a coma, right, a, a, a medically induced coma. But the question is what kind of atrophy we're going to have coming out of this. I mean, are we going to be able to function and how quickly will that happen? I mean, I would argue that, that it's going to take a lot longer than people expect and we may be here for a while in 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 the doldrums right so Gabe um, again leadership from the White House to Leah's point too about the president sucking up most of the oxygen but he's not the only one speaking and on this question of the economy when you look to the people around the president for some kind of indication of how the economy is going to come out here is chief economic advisor Larry Kudlow just a few days ago talking about um, well, maybe two or a couple of weeks ago, uh, reassuring everybody, no problem here, no problem. Larry Kudlow. Our public health people are preparing for any eventualities. They were ahead of the curve on the travel bans. Now they're ahead of the curve insofar as laying out potential emergency plans. That doesn't mean it's going to go into effect. We've asked for a supplemental of a couple of billion dollars or so. As far as the U.S. is concerned, we have contained this, I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. This is a human tragedy. The business side and the economic side uh, I don't think it's going to be an economic tragedy at all. Uh, I wonder if you ask the head of the airlines or the head or the heads of s- millions of small businesses around the country today, Gabe, if you get that same response. Uh, I mean, let's be very clear about this. I, I don't want to overstate the point, but uh, that's terrifying to hear because Larry Kudlow specifically is someone who's notorious for being exactly wrong on his predictions over many, many years. And he keeps about saying about everything, con- about everything. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I remember in 2007, eight, nine, he constantly spoke about how great the economy was about to be. Uh Obviously, small businesses are in enormous pain right now if they even exist right now. And I think to Joe's point, uh, when you hear from the White House that, you know, we're just going to snap back and reopen the economy any day now, where is the evidence of that? I mean, I've I've spoken with people anecdotally who are sort of small business types who said who've sort of been assuming that this is going to be a V-shaped recovery, that one day the White House is just going to get up and say, um, 
well, you know, we're reopening the economy now as if that's a, you know, specific order that they can give and that things will just fall back into place as if none of this had happened. There's no evidence of that scientific or economic or otherwise. And economically, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of these businesses, small and enormous, to get back on their feet. You, you mentioned the airline industry or the hospitality industry overall. You know, they've lost uh, more money than anyone could possibly ever budget for already. And, and the White House is sort of just saying, well, enough is enough here. Let's just move on. Um, if that is genuinely the economic advice that the president and the White House is operating from, the Kudlow school of thought there, then that's terrifying because that, that suggests that this recession is going to last for a very long time. And obviously, uh, I don't see any long-term uh calculus or long-term thinking about legislation that's going to fix this problem. Right. Uh, Leah, back to the briefings for just a sec. The other, uh, uh, every, every day you can expect uh, as part of the briefing, um, not only some exaggeration perhaps from Donald Trump, but uh, an attack on reporters, uh, particularly anybody who dare asks anything approaching a critical question. Uh, it happened this week again. Uh, in particularly strong fashion, when a reporter from Fox News actually asked the president about a report by the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services that hospitals were complaining they were not getting enough protective gear. They couldn't get enough tests and, and masks and gloves. And uh, the president really didn't like that. Uh, he said, who said that? How long has she been there? Uh, Jonathan Carl from ABC News stepped up and said, here's, here's her name. Here's how long she's been there. And it turns out not only did she get her job from Donald Trump, but she had been as part of the federal government in the previous two administrations, the Obama administration and the Bush administration. And this set Donald Trump off in a storm at Jonathan Carl. Here he is. Did serve in the previous administration. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Oh, I see. You didn't tell me that, John. You didn't tell me that. Did serve in the previous administration. You mean the Obama administration. Thank you for telling me that. See, there's a typical fake news deal. You asked me when she was appointed. I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter. And what you just said is a disgrace, okay? You asked me, you said, sir, just got appointed. Take a look at what you said now. I said, when did they, when did this person, how long in government? Well, it was appointed in the Obama administration. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. You will never make it. Go ahead. There he is, Jonathan Carl, chief White House correspondent for ABC. He'll never make it. He'll never make it. You're done in this business. Yeah, right. You'll never work in this town again. So, Leo, I mean, what, I think all of us would agree, what place does these personal attacks on reporters have, period? Uh, I, I think we've been talking about for a while how Trump is going to rise to the moment, act presidential. We've said it yeah. in a bunch of different ways over the last three and a half, really four years now, be, you know, before he became president as well. Um, and uh, for those of us who have not learned that he is not going to change, um, I feel like this is more proof. I think we've had proof for a while, but if you needed more, there it is. Um Trump going after reporters when he does not like the news is nothing new. Um, the idea that he is going to reveal a new side of himself that is going to make him appear more presidential, that is going to uh, create an uptick in his favorability ratings, just doesn't seem realistic to me when we know that Trump stays in character, even when his advisors and when um, 
candidates and, and committees across the country are, are panicking because there's an election coming around. We know that there's no changing his tone. Um, this is just more of the same from him. Right. Now, he'll never break from that, but we will take a quick break here on the uh, podcast and our roundtable today with Gabe DiBenedetti, Leah Scaranam, and Joe Williams here on the Bill Press Spot. A uh, quick break, then we'll resume our conversation. And today's podcast, today's roundtable, brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, otherwise known as LIUNA, a real powerhouse in the American labor movement. 500,000 workers, men and women, under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, active in the construction business, building, rebuilding our infrastructure in the energy field, and in with uh, some 50,000 public employees. We salute the members of the Laborers Union and thank them for their good work rebuilding this country and their support of the Bill Press Pod. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to the Roundtable in the Bill Press pod here with Joe Williams from U.S. News and World Report, Gabe DiBenedetti from New York Magazine, Leah Ascaranam from National Journal Hotline, and who thought it would end this way back now to the Democratic primary? Uh, Gabe, you've been out there on the road a lot. Did you think Bernie would anyway drop out this week? There have been whispers about something like this coming for some time. The, the timing was a surprise. I, I don't want to pretend that I knew that this was coming. Um, but it's he's been very clear for a long time that he had expected to stay in essentially till the end. But he didn't think that the race was going to turn against him so quickly. And I think that the last few weeks have provided a lot of opportunity for Bernie Sanders to do some soul searching and to figure out what his political future and the future of his movement look like and, and what actually makes sense to do Um given the context of, of this race, but also this pandemic that's sweeping the country. And so when you saw him get out there and say, essentially, it doesn't make sense for me to keep going and this more or less be a distraction um, when when we're trying to save the world, more or less, it wasn't a surprising line of messaging. But yeah, I was surprised by the timing. I mean, I, I certainly didn't know that this was coming on uh, the day or time that it did. Uh, but the writing had been on the wall for Bernie Sanders. He he knew starting in the early to late March, early to mid-March, I should say, that he wasn't going to win. And he's been trying to figure out a way to wrap this up in a, in a reasonable way. Uh, and he didn't clearly want to continue to seriously compete for a lot of these races. He didn't really try and win Wisconsin this last week, which was, of course, a ridiculous election that was held in the to be held in the first place. So uh, there are a lot of people in his world who think that it was about time for him to, to finish this up. And I think one of the big questions now is what sort of role he's going to play in helping Joe Biden get elected, because it's one thing for him to be able to get out in the you know, campaign trail and do rallies all over the country like he did in the end uh, for Hillary Clinton, but doesn't look like that's going to happen because no one's going to be doing any campaign rallies anytime soon. Right. 
And Leah, yesterday, Joe Biden did uh, embrace two, they're, they're not the most sweeping parts of the Bernie Sanders agenda, um, but he adopted two things, one regarding college education, the other regarding reducing the eligibility for Medicare. Um, and he said, these are both Bernie Sanders ideas and I embrace them. So what's the challenge now for Joe Biden? Is it uh, to move as far left as he can or what? Uh, I think that the first challenge, and this is kind of the most obvious one, the, the day that Bernie dropped out, uh, Trump held a, at one of his many press conferences, and it was clear that he was trying to uh, get Bernie supporters to switch over to the Republican Party or, or maybe just not turn out at all. Um, I think that the, the main issue now is Joe Biden getting these voters to turn out. Um, Joe Biden, I think, will have some advantage from Bernie actually kind of staying as an influence for a while, continuing to get delegates. Um, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive because the thought is if he's still on the ballot, then obviously, you know, it divides votes. But if uh, Bernie Sanders can say at the end of this, you know, I stayed in, I managed to get some of my policies into Joe Biden's platform, so voting for Joe Biden is kind of like voting for me, then um, that probably helps Democrats in, in general. Uh, Joe Biden did well in all of the exit polling with just about every demographic except for young voters. And with young voters, it wasn't like, you know, close. There was no, I mean, Joe yeah. Biden completely got swamped when it came to young voters. Um, young voters don't tend to turn out as high as older voters. So that is a benefit for a general election. Um, but obviously, he cannot lose with young voters the way he continued to do so in the primary. Uh, that's his that's his number one goal. Uh, and Joe, almost as big news as Bernie Sanders dropping out this week was John Lewis, the revered John Lewis, uh, a hero of all of us, endorsing joe biden yeah uh, i mean huge yeah absolutely huge i mean one could argue that south carolina was what put joe biden back in the race and totally. south carolina is uh you know neighboring to georgia john lewis has a lot of influence among older african-american voters and it could signal uh that he has the momentum to 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 take it all the way uh joe mentum if you will which is a phrase <laughs> that i always personally found annoying but uh in any event, I mean, I think that the that, that, that latest point about young voters is really kind of curious because, um, well, not curious, but interesting in that uh, Bernie, that was his brand. But as the primary ground on, they just kind of disappeared. They didn't really show up in great numbers. And they aren't going to show up in great, well, I, 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 I hesitate to predict this, but I wonder how big their influence is going to be in the fall. And I don't think any Repub any Democratic candidate, save for Barack Obama, who had the excitement and newness of the brand about him, has done particularly well with, with younger voters um, come election time in November. So it will be interesting to see if that translates into any kind of, of an advantage for the Democrats, particularly now that the economy is in the tank, particularly now that, that justifiably or not, the coronavirus has the, 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 the image of being something that's that's affecting the olds and not necessarily the young. And I wonder if that sense of urgency is still going to be there in a couple of months. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It looks like you want to jump in, Gabe. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. But I think uh, Leah is right, too, on, on the fact that, you know, obviously young voters carried, carried Bernie Sanders there, though he lost ground at the end, and that's why he lost there. But I think that a lot of the conversation about the Bernie coalition and how, what Joe Biden needs to do to win them over and, so to speak, over the last uh, day or two has kind of been overwrought and, and in many ways 
uh, we're overlearning the lessons or talking overly about the lessons of 2016. Um, and this is just a completely different world than 2016 was, True. I think, for a number of different reasons, one of which this is early April. Uh, and that race in 2016 between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton didn't end until June, basically. Uh, right. The relationship between Sanders and Biden is significantly better than it ever was between Sanders and Clinton, and the race never got as bitter as it did last time. Sanders' yep. base is smaller, and it's much more uh, progressive and liberal than it was in 2016, when a lot of it was just anti-Clinton and therefore not willing to vote for her in the general election. There, there's not a, the same amount of anti-Biden base out there. And, you know, Biden has basically been working behind the scenes with Sanders' team for quite some time now, knowing that this was coming, to try and come up with some policy um, concessions. Now, all of that said, I think Joe is also correct that uh, at the end of the day, this is not going to be an election, to, to, you know, uh, determined by young voters. And, and Joe Biden knows that, of course, they're going to try and turn out as many young voters as possible. And that's what you're going to see a lot of focus on, I suspect, in the next few weeks, especially while Bernie Sanders is still in the news a little bit here. And they'll rely on Bernie Sanders. Even Barack Obama, I reported yesterday, has asked Bernie Sanders to play a role moving forward here. And, and Sanders has said that he would. But when you look at the overall course of the primary, it's a mistake to think of 2016 as telling us too many stories about how to win over Sanders voters. Because the lead that uh, Joe Biden has had in head-to-head -head polling with Donald Trump is significantly more consistent than the one that Hillary Clinton ever had. And that's largely because of his strength, not only with uh, communities of color, both African-American, Latino, Asian-American, all over this country, but also, very, very crucially, with uh, white suburban voters who are, in many cases, former Republicans, the people that turned out in the 2018 midterms. Hillary Clinton lost those people by quite a lot to Donald Trump, and Joe Biden is winning them. Right. So I'll, uh, I want to get personal here for a second, um, just to wrap up. That, and that is that I have been to every Democratic convention since 1976, when I went for the first time with Jerry Brown, who had 331 delegates, as I recall. Um, was no way he was going to win the nomination, but he refused to drop out until the convention, gave his speech on the convention floor in New York. But my point is, having been to every convention since 1976, I want to know, each of you, am I going to get to go to a convention this year, a national convention this year? Leah? Well, if you're going to the Republican convention, it's definitely no, possible. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to too many of those, too. Not every uh, one. But. <laughs> Democratic doesn't, <laughs> I, I don't know how that happens. It seems more and more likely that it's going to be virtual. But the Republican National yeah. Convention, as of a couple of days ago, Trump was saying there's no contingency plan for an alternative. So. Well, that was a couple of days ago, right? Oh. Yeah. Yep. I mean, seriously, it does raise a question about whether you're going to be able to get as Joe Biden has said, 10, 20, 30,000 people together in a on a convention floor, and they'll be even comfortable with that. What's your I take? Mean, okay. Yeah, Leanne, Sorry, go ahead. ahead. As across the country right now, we're seeing kind of state and local governments and even city governments start to try to do their own kind of type of conventions and other kinds of meetings on their own virtual platforms. Not shockingly, the technological issues have been um, a bit of a barrier for some of these uh, politicians. But I mean, you do see the beginnings of this becoming a new normal. What do you think, Joe? It's mind-boggling, to be honest with you. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around how you're going to do a virtual, co virtual convention 
with all the hoopla and all the meetings and all the glad handing and all the behind the scenes stuff that takes place because ultimately can't, conventions can't are yeah they're about personal relationships right they're right. about face-to-face -face interaction they're about getting people and convincing them to agree with you and convincing them to vote in ways that you want them to and just social distancing just kind of puts that completely uh on its head so it's even though a virtual convention is probably likely it's hard to see how you can manage that how you can get the same kind of level of excitement and how you can get the same momentum uh there's that word again to head into the fall and take on donald trump head to head how's it going to, what's going to look like gabe yeah, you can go to a convention, I think, but only if you have a Zoom account because it's not going to be in, in <laughs> Milwaukee. Uh, it, it's my guess right now. Um, but I think that's all right. But I think that, you know, one of the things that this uh, these obviously unfortunate circumstances has done is really shown a spotlight and forced us to rethink a lot of what we think of as traditional political uh, machinations and how we do politics. Rallies, yep. there's no reason rallies need to exist. There's no reason, you know... Joe Biden going through a diner needs to exist, for example. Uh, I mean, there are obvious reasons why that might be good in the short run. But my point being that I think what we're going to see is a radical rethinking of what a convention is by necessity. Because as Joe right. just said, there's a lot that happens at these conventions, but that's not necessarily right. by – that's just because of tradition. So I would not be surprised if a lot of this stuff just essentially does not happen anymore. Um, I think one of the things that Biden does need to worry about, by the way, with all of this is, is to a point that Joe was just alluding to – there's a real world in which he's just not in the spotlight at all from now to at least midsummer, if not late summer, because of all of this. And Trump is a convention is a natural way to get everyone excited around Absolutely. you and right. to really seize the spotlight for at least a week. That if there's no if it's only a virtual convention or if it's essentially just a series of speeches from his living room, which we've already seen enough of, uh, I really it's going to be very difficult for Biden to really so rally the party and, himself, and, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly it is going to be a whole new world indeed joe and gabe and leah great conversation thank you thank you so much but we won't let you go uh i want to know kind of what caught your attention this week either on the serious front the coronavirus front the political front or whatever your favorite story of the week uh who wants to kick us off well i'll go joe. first um i had two um, I, will, I will skip one, um, which was you know Tom Brady letting his hair down and finally getting funky with it uh, now that he's in Tampa. But uh, I wanted to I wanted to spotlight this this really fascinating thing that caught my eye. Uh, Time Magazine put Dallas uh, Dallas cafeteria workers on their cover. Um, you see them here. They're they're a group of women. They're wearing masks and they're holding lunch bags, and they delivered over a million meals to wow. hungry school kids in Dallas. And I thought that that was an amazing act of fortitude and shows what is possible in really unusual and unprecedented circumstances when people focus on doing the right thing. And there are many, many stories like that across the country. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really heartwarming. Uh, Leah, how about you? Uh, so I probably couldn't choose my favorite clearing the shelters story this week, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. But while we're all focusing on the national level, uh, 
House races, congressional races, are still happening. Uh, FEC deadlines are still happening as well. Uh, and this morning, uh, I'm going to plug a National Journal story, but it's not even behind a paywall, so it's 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 okay. <laughs> you can you can read it um, uh, about, about congressional uh, races. Yeah, about congressional races and about candidates who uh, claim to be uh, Trump's candidates who are getting cease and desist letters um, from other candidates, people who have said like terrible things about Trump in the past then turning around and putting photos of him on their websites. Um, basically, a bunch of Republican candidates trying to do the Trump loyalty game um, and trying to figure out which of them is, is bluffing. Oh, we'll check it out. Check it out on National Journal. And Gabe? Uh, mine is for the work from home crowd, which is all of us. Uh, it's a, um, a story that was written this week by my colleague at New York Magazine, our restaurant critic, Adam Platt. He uh, obviously is trying to find things to write about these days with no restaurants uh, in action. And he wrote about uh, a bunch of very uh, viral online uh, bean recipes and subjecting his family to trying to eat all of these bean recipes. <laughs> Didn't work very well, but it's a hilarious, almost heartwarming story. <laughs> By the way, beans like toilet paper uh, and like um, jigsaw puzzles are one of those products that you can't find anymore. Right? Short supply. Because, exactly. And pasta. Like that too. Well, I want to go back. My, I have another feel-good story out of uh, the coronavirus crisis. Uh, go back to where Joe started. Uh, and that is, uh, this has never been reported. I'm going to report it right now for the first time. Uh, my cousin, George Bendler, has a restaurant in Dewey Beach, Delaware called Hammerheads. Uh, which is closed now because, uh, like all restaurants in Delaware, are closed uh, across the country. Uh, and so he started a little uh, GoFundMe account to raise money for not only his employees, but others in the restaurants in southern Delaware who lost their jobs. Um, he also needed a haircut. And, of course, you can't get a haircut. So uh, his wife shaved his head. And they did a little video of his having his head shaved so he could help raise money for these workers. Uh, and the head of Dogfish Head Brewery, which for beer drinkers is one of the best in the country, I understand, uh, Sam Calagione, who sold Dogfish last year to Sam Adams for $300 million. He saw this video of my cousin getting his head shaved, and he sent in $100,000 to help wow. Wow. the f restaurant workers in southern Delaware. And I thought that's, that's awesome. A that's, that's great. a great, great story. Yeah. Well, I'm also here uh, for head shaving, so that's... Well... <laughs> Me too when I get my clippers yeah. eventually. <laughs> by, by the way, I hear from more people about what they're doing about their hair getting long or with women who can't get their hair colored anymore. Are they really going to turn gray? Well, talk right. about a brave new world. I mean, <laughs> we're, in uncharted, we're in uncharted territory here. We sure are. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, members of the panel. Let me uh, ask your indulgence for a quick parting shot Which, uh, before we go, which I always uh, advise you are my opinions and not necessarily those of the panel. Uh, and about Bernie Sanders, whoever thought this was the way the Democratic primary would end, not with a flurry of hard-fought primaries, not with a rowdy convention, not with a bang, but with a whimper which is how it did end this week when Bernie Sanders pulled the plug on his campaign, leaving Joe Biden the last man standing. For Democrats, it is good news. They're now able to focus all their efforts on building the campaign against Donald Trump. And it's also a great opportunity for Democrats to unite the party. And I believe the first step in uniting the party 
is for everybody to give Bernie Sanders the credit he is due. More than any other Democrat alive, Bernie Sanders changed the Democratic Party in three ways. First, with the progressive ideas he championed, minimum wage, universal health care, free college education, fighting climate change, which are now the goals of every, that every Democrat embraces. Second, by bringing disaffected blue-collar workers back to the party and inspiring a whole army of idealistic first-time young voters. And third, by completely reinventing the way campaigns are funded. Candidates don't need the millionaire donors anymore. With the right message and the right know-how, they can raise all the money they need from small donors. I remember back in March 2014, when I first talked to Bernie about his running for president, he told me that his primary goal was not to get elected president, but to build a national movement based on progressive ideas that would reshape the Democratic Party. Looking back today, I think Senator Sanders can say, mission accomplished. And that's it for today's uh, roundtable. Thanks again to Gabe DiBenedetti, Joe Williams, and Leah Scaranam. Thanks to all of you for listening. Do us a favor and subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by going to wherever you're listening to this podcast. Pull up the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe. Tell all your friends to do the same. And most importantly, stay safe. Social distancing. We're not over it yet. We've got a long ways to go. And please come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.